episode 103, Rock This Town. I'm Morgan Shortle, and you're listening to the March 24th, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Kansas Industries, mining isn't one of the first things that usually springs to mind, but the southeast portion of our state has been heavily involved in mining since shortly after Kansas became a state. Join collection specialist Donna Ray Pearson and me as we examine some recently donated mineral samples from Trees, Kansas, and learn about the impact that mining had on the area. And then, in this week's episode of Six Degrees of William Allen White, we asked you to connect Mr. White with Smith Center native Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, one of the most famous stars of the silent film era. Did our favorite newspaper editor have a secret desire to be a Hollywood star? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, rock this town. We're gonna rock this town, rock it inside out. We're gonna rock this town, think of a scream and shout. Good morning, Donna Ray. Good morning, Morgan. And we're going to talk about some rocks, or I guess I should say minerals today from southeast Kansas. They are technically minerals. Mm -hmm. Um, But before we get to that, I just want to remind our listeners that they can see images of of these minerals on our website, kshs.org. So, Donna Ray, most people don't think of Kansas as being a big mining state, but we have a lot of history in that, right? That's exactly right. We've been mining in Kansas pretty much since it was founded. Um, not so much all across the state, but in the southeast corner, mining is was was and still is to some extent a pretty big industry. Um, during the early part of the 20th century, there was an area called the Tri-State Mining Area. It covered about 2,500 square miles, and it consisted of Kansas, a bit of Missouri, and Oklahoma, and mining was huge down there. They produced... Um, from those mines almost half of the resources that were available across the country at that time in terms of for instance they produce about 50 percent of this zinc that the united states used and about 10 percent of the lead that was used came from that area during the early part of the 20th century cool and these samples were just donated uh what kind of minerals are they and where are they from well i think you just said where they're from so what are they (laughs) well you know i'm i wasn't that great in that class but (laughs) (laughs) they are lead zinc calcite calcite oh how are you calcite thank you (laughs) calcite um and um they were collected in a town called Treese, Kansas, which is on the very edge of the Kansas border. Literally, there's a street in Treese where you can walk across the street in in Oklahoma. Okay. So, very bottom of the state. And they were given to us. I mean, kids could literally go around and pick this stuff up off of the ground and um, go to, like, your local gift shop or your store and sell it like other people used to do with pop bottles, you know? (laughs) 
Huh. Uh, so how was the mining operation conducted? Well, mining, this is called underground mining. You know, now we do it a little bit more environmentally safe. It's strip mining. You just kind of pull away the layers. What they used to do is actually dig into the ground like a um, gopher would. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, these people had to, um, in the early stages, they had to get the minerals out with axes and um, trowels and carry them up in huge barrels and um, lift them to the surface. They're about 200 feet below the ground. Yeah. So they had to bring them up to the surface. And they did this with a series of tunnels that they created underneath the ground. Wow, sounds like some back-breaking work. It was. It really was. It sounds like hazardous work. <laughs> Talk about the dangers. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, because consider you're digging underneath the ground, so you've got a little level that your house sits on, and then there's a tunnel underneath it. And um, some of the things that could occur is something called a cave-in. So, you know, one day you're kind of walking around, and boop! It's gone. <laughs> you know, if the soil's not hitting just right. Um, some of the other byproducts of mining this way is dust. Um, the dust fills the air, basically. And these little particles of dust aren't really nice. They're like little sharp needle things like burrs, you know, that get stuck on your clothes. Yeah. So they would get lodged in the miner's lungs. And, um, yeah, the dust would be all over the town. Um, just felt the air is what I've been told. So not only were the miners in hazardous conditions, but the town was too. Yeah. Um, so, But the mines provided steady employment and uh, support for the towns. Oh, yeah. It was a big money-making industry. Um, and it did really bring a new, you know, a new meaning to company towns. Um, there would, there would be literally a mining company that would make sure the miners had some place to live. They would make sure there were hospitals there, there, the schools were there. They were the tax base for the most part in these towns. And everything else just kind of fed into that industry, like the schools. I mean, not the schools, but like stores and things mm -hmm. like that provided assistance for miners. So... Um, it really made a huge difference to have this kind of industry in a small town like that. It probably wouldn't have existed otherwise, but the flip side of that is is when the company closes, what happens to the town? So the mines are gone in trees now, correct? Yeah. The, the, mines are, the mines have been closed. The company has been gone since about the early 70s. Um, and the legacy, basically, that they left were mine mines underneath the town and there's something called chat you know they're huge piles of mining debris the leftover stuff that were scattered across the town it lo it literally looks like a, a moonscape mountains hmm. and um so those were left and water is also used in the process so the water was also kind of a red color left over and people with, were still living here and people were still living there they were and they knew that there was something wrong because there were there was a lot of illness mm -hmm. too um there's emphysema there was cancer there was heart disease and, you know, those are the internal things outside of, you know, the bad physical labor that occurred. Mm -hmm. um, the day that I went there, 
um, they told me I was very lucky that it was raining because it kept the dust down. Wow. But after I'd been there for a couple of hours and the rain hadn't stopped yet, you know, this is kind of a visual of what, what life is in trees. Um, they said that, well, now we have to be concerned about a cave-in. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> and they said, if the ground gets too saturated, then cave-ins can happen again sporadically at any time because the mines were not properly shut down when the company left. Wow. So, so yeah, so they've um, taken, you know, they, they've been there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, were there any steps, what steps were taken to address these problems? Um, the company, well, you know, my, the mining industry, you know, is an environmental concern. Mm -hmm. um, the way that it used to be done throughout the United States. Again, like I said, there's much safer ways to do it now. The above ground mining, the strip mining is a little bit better. But um, the folks in trees and really across that area got together and the EPA ended up um, designating that not just a bad area, but a super fund mega site. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning this was no little problem that was going to be you know, gently go away. Um, so the EPA, they started toying with it. You know, they didn't really get into the investigative work. Mm -hmm. You know, there had been some other documentation beforehand to make sh to draw the EPA there, but they didn't really start um, their investigative work for about five years. And then, you know, they had to think about how to clean it up. And that took a few years, probably about nine or ten years. Think about how to clean it up. And people are still living here. Um, and finally, they decided that they should just kind of bury it. They just bury it and move it in different places. <laughs> they wanted to spread the chat around. <laughs> so, um, and then it, then they said we were we're done here, and that whole process probably ended in about two thousand. Um, but. There, the other part of this story is that there was another town just across the Oklahoma border mm -hmm. called Pitcher. And it was, these two towns were actually created at the same time, only because we changed the state line of Kansas where they divided. Okay. So they were basically identical towns. The people worked together, they, you know, school, everything, they were the same people. Um, exact same mining companies, exact same chat piles yeah. all over the place. Um, for some reason, they were a little more successful because Teresa is in one EPA jurisdiction and Pitcher is in a different EPA jurisdiction. So oh. they ended up getting bought out. Pitcher, the whole town? The whole town. Pitcher, Oklahoma is now the first modern-day ghost town I've ever been to, where one day there were people, and the next day they just kind of all packed up and left with their, wow. you know, buyout checks in hand. So are they hoping, so is trees will they be bought out? Are there hopes? Are well, there... The, yeah. the process, because the towns are so close together, and the only reason why they did not get the same deal that Trees was because they were in a different jurisdiction, um, and Pitcher got bought out about two years ago, so the residents of Trees renewed their efforts, and they have been successful. Um, I think it was last fall, last November, it was officially put into a bill. Oh, okay. And they, the process is beginning, and they're not 
quite sure the strategies that are going to be taken, whether they'll be handed checks or um, if they're going to try some other remedies, but that soon too will be a modern day ghost yeah. town. Wow. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of eerie, I bet. It is. When you go down there and visit, it it really is kind of like the daytime stood still because you've got in especially in picture because there are some areas that were newer there had been a tornado which added insult to injury yeah. to these poor people um so there were some newer sections and they were just um empty wow <laughs> yeah it was just yeah Okay, last question. Okay. Um, Minerals and rocks and other natural elements are usually found in natural history museums. So why was our history museum interested in these? Well, I think it's because of the story of um, the buyout, the environmental, you know, angle to this and what these rocks symbolize. I mean, not only were was that industry very good to us for a long time, I mean, they contributed millions of dollars to our economy and provided that stable workforce for those people who didn't have much industry. Um, but the flip side is what's the consequence of our actions. And I think the rocks really symbolize, you know, if you're not um, environmentally conscious, if you don't think about the future, mm -hmm. what can happen later. And I think they tell that story pretty well. Cool. Well, thanks for stopping by today. All right. Thanks, Morgan. Fast pace, good with the sight gag, quick with the pie face. He loved Buster Keaton as well as good eating. He dabbled in wordplay and died on his best day. But he prefers Roscoe Arbuckle. Roscoe Arbuckle is his real name. I defer to Roscoe Arbuckle. I'm never gonna call him Fatty again. I'm never gonna call him Fatty again. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Museum Director Bob Kettgeisen. Hello. And Curator Blair Tarr. Hello. And hey guys, it's Fatty Arbuckle's birthday. Hey, way to go, Roscoe! <laughs> I, I think it should be a national holiday. <laughs> Do we get it off? Hey, we get it off every day. Okay. He's a kids and we should get it off. <laughs> Come on. Well, our Six Degrees of William Allen White challenge in this episode was to connect the Sage of Emporia with the funniest man to ever come out of Smith Center, Kansas, silent film star Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. And Bob, could you give us some background on Fatty? You bet. <laughs> well, Roscoe Arbuckle, as Blair mentioned, or you mentioned, somebody here mentioned a minute ago, uh, was born in Smith Center, Kansas uh, on March 24th, 1887. And reports of his weight at birth uh, vary, I've read anywhere from 13 to 16 pounds. <laughs> um, Blair's assuring me it's more to the 13, or more to the 16 pound end of things. But. Well, IMDB can't be right, who could yeah, be? Exactly. <laughs> so no matter how you cut this, he was, he was a big boy, <laughs> no, no matter what. And as a child, he had a, a great singing voice, and his mother encouraged him to perform in local productions and local theaters. And he was also extremely agile for his size. And this is a talent that he would use throughout his career. Even though he's really big, he, he was pretty agile. And he got his first big break performing in a talent show where the winners were determined by the amount of applause the audience got or the performers got the hook. I mean, literally, there was a shepherd's crook that came <laughs> on and they got the person and pulled him off stage. Well, 
uh, Roscoe wasn't doing too well, and as the hook came out to get him off stage, uh, he did this sort of tumbling somersault into the orchestra pit, and the <laughs> audience went wild. They loved him, and he did these sort of pratfalls, and everybody was amazed at you know this fat little guy that could could uh, bounce around. So he won the competition, and he went on to a career in vaudeville. And he traveled on the vaudeville circuit for a number of years and eventually wound up in California in the early 1900s and uh, broke into silent films there. He quickly became one of that genre's leading comedians. And as I mentioned, his agility really belied his enormous size and his kind of sweet baby face made him instantly likable to a lot of moviegoers. And although he'd been called fatty ever since he was a kid, didn't care for the name, and he's pretty self-conscious about his size. So he saw, he, although his build is Fatty Arbuckle, he saw him. He saw Fatty as a character, you know, and didn't like to be referred to as Fatty off screen. So I just insulted yeah. him earlier. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, why he called him Roscoe. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, if if anyone called him Fatty off screen, he usually would say, "I've got a name," you know. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, but he became incredibly popular and successful, and he mentored both Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. He got into silent films before them, kind of gave them their breaks, and got uh, Chaplin and Keaton started. And things were going great for Arbuckle until Labor Day weekend of 1921. And he was taking a break from filming, and he and two of his friends drove up to San Francisco and rented three rooms at the St. Francis Hotel. And during a party there that weekend, um, a young aspiring actress by the name of Virginia Rapp came to the party and at some point in the evening collapsed in Arbuckle's room, most likely having too much to drink. And they called the hotel doctor who treated her with morphine. So <laughs> no, if that helped anything or not. Uh, and he concluded that she was just intoxicated. Um, well, two days later, her health worsened and a friend of hers took Virginia Rapp to the hospital and the friend claimed that Arbuckle had raped her, had raped Virginia Rapp, not the friend. Uh, well, Rapp died a day later from peritonitis, which is caused by a ruptured bladder. Well, most reports are that Rapp was a pretty unstable young woman to begin with and there were reports that she may have had a botched abortion in the day or days leading up to the party and that this was all a condition of that and that Arbuckle had nothing to do with her. Well, anyway, be that as it may, Arbuckle was arrested and tried for manslaughter. And at the time of the trial, it literally was the trial of the century. I mean, here's a huge, you know, Hollywood silent film star, and he's in this salacious manslaughter trial. They didn't get him on murder. They, they uh, charged him with manslaughter. Well, the jury deadlocked, and a mistrial was declared. So he was tried a second time in early 1922. Another deadlock, another mistrial after the second trial. And... The only good that came out of this at the time was for somebody else, and that was for William Randolph Hearst and his national chain of newspapers, uh, which salaciously covered the trials with description of, uh, of Arbuckle as this kind of grossly overweight lecher pushing himself on young girls, and when in fact Arbuckle was pretty shy around women. But Hearst later said that the trials, quote, sold more newspapers than any event since the sinking of the Lusitania. So. <laughs> Hearst made a bunch of money off that. It's about seven years. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, after the second mistrial, third trial was held, and Arbuckle was unanimously acquitted. Uh, the jury was out for 12 minutes, and in fact, they were so appalled by the lack of evidence that they spent five of those 12 minutes when they were in deliberation writing an apology. 
And it took the third t- trial to get trials to, to get to this. <laughs> and they said, acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done him. There was not the slightest proof to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story which we all believe. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from blame. Well, uh, scholarly studies afterwards have indicated that Arbuckle most likely was completely innocent uh, and that he had nothing to do with Rapp's death. But the scandal ruined Fatty Arbuckle's career. His wife divorced him, studios refused to release his movies, and he became an alcoholic. Buster Keaton tried to help Arbuckle by giving him some jobs writing and co-directing some of his films, uh, sometimes under an assumed name, and eventually Arbuckle did find work as a director under the pseudonym William Goodrich, which is kind of interesting because his father, who really didn't want to have a whole lot to do with him when he was a young boy, Roscoe Arbuckle's dad's name was William Goodrich Arbuckle. Uh. So, well, in the 1930s, Fatty, I guess I shouldn't call him Fatty either, but anyway, <laughs> Roscoe Arbuckle started to make a comeback as the scandal had died down somewhat, and he signed a contract with Warner Brothers for a series of two real comedies and had just finished work on those on June 28, 1933, and the next day he was signed by Warner Brothers to make a feature-length film. So he's making a comeback, and he reportedly say, this is the best day of my life. He went home, suffered a heart attack, and died in his sleep. Man, Uh, tragic. 46 years old, and he was cremated, and his ashes were scattered in the Pacific Ocean. So there's a cheery note to end on. But uh, yeah, great comedian, uh, fabulous star, just um, had his life ruined by a false accusation. Well, okay, thanks for that, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, Blair, I understand you're quite the movie buff, so yeah, is. is this pretty easy for you, the solution? Yeah, this, this was kind of a softball, just just short of not being able to find a connection directly to between the two, because William Allen White did have a Hollywood side to him. Uh, two of his novels were picked up as movies in the early 1920s, silent films, of course, uh, In the Heart of a Fool, and a certain rich man. In fact, he's given credit for the screenplay of the later one, A Certain Rich Man, so that uh, he did spend some time out in Los Angeles, uh, possibly getting that he possibly could have known Fatty Arbuckle personally. So Couldn't find any, that, however. We have any William Allen White on the red carpet photos or anything? No, no we don't. No, need, no it's, it's, uh, don't this is just a him. little before the Oscars. Okay. <laughs> Darn. Uh, but anyway, you might guess that's where we're going to get our contact. Uh, in 1923, there was a film called Hollywood, which, and I should have said, like our, the William Allen White films, we don't know if it exists today. It seemed hmm. to be gone. The William Allen White films, by the way, apparently were not commercially successful. <laughs> so it's <laughs> maybe why you can't find them today. Uh, but this film in Hollywood is about a family that goes to Hollywood and trying to break into the business. And it apparently has cameo appearances by just about everybody who was somebody in Hollywood. The list as it goes on for about 50 names. So it must have been quite a film in itself. Two of the names in there, well, Fatty Arbuckle or Roscoe Arbuckle is, uh, <laughs> is one of the cameos. And another is a man by the name of Robert McKim, who is one of the stars for A Certain Rich Man. Oh, screenplay, screenplay by... Yeah, screenplay William by William Allen White. And... Uh, uh, McKim had a pretty good career, actually. Unfortunately, he dies right at the end of the silent era, and we don't know if he would have been able to continue into this sound era or not. But 
Uh, he's best known today as Zorro's nemesis. He gets Douglas Fairbank Sr. Oh, okay. Great. So, Thanks, Blair. Well, that's pretty uh, and actually, there's a second connection oh, to the okay. other movie. We're going yeah, to have one more. <laughs> there's an actress by the name of Anna Q. Nelson. You probably wouldn't see that on a marquee today, but <laughs> no. <laughs> she, too, was very popular in the silent era. She starred in the other film uh, of Wayne Mylon White's uh, In the Heart of a Fool. And uh, she is more like one of the typical silent star silent star actresses. Uh, she had a great career in the silence. She does make it into the sound era, but it's usually in bit roles that, and actually continued up until 1954. Wow. It's a pretty so long career. Around, so. Okay, great. There's our connections. So, just two. You don't have a third one. There's probably a third one out there somewhere, <laughs> but... <laughs> All right. Bob, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Well, our next podcast will be in two weeks on April 7th, and we are going to continue our birthday theme. Great. <laughs> like we did in this episode. And we're going to kind of keep it in the arts, but move away from Hollywood this time. April 7th is the birthday of noted blues singer Billie Holiday. So, we thought we'd honor her as only we can by connecting her to William Allen White. Awesome. Okay, so if you think you can connect William Allen White with the woman who some have said changed the art of American pop vocals forever, just send your solution to podcasts at khs.org. That's podcasts with an S. That concludes episode 103, Rock This Town. To see photos of the newly donated minerals, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcast. Would you like to see the Cool Things Podcast ranked higher on iTunes? Help us out by leaving a comment, or better yet, a five-star rating. Go to the iTunes store, then search for Cool Things, click on our podcast, and throw us some stars. Come back in two weeks when curator Laurel Fritsch joins us to examine a mannequin that was used in training hospital, staff, and emergency responders in the 1960s. You just have two weeks to think of all your best dummy jokes. See you in April. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Well, hey, you look at me once, you look at me twice.